0: Welcome to The AR Bookshelf, a podcast by The Architectural Review. Founded in 1896, the AR has set the international architecture agenda for over 120 years. The AR Bookshelf is very simple. We ask each guest to put books on an imaginary bookshelf and tell us their story. My name's Eleanor Beaumont, Deputy Editor at The Architectural Review, and joining us for this chapter of The AR Bookshelf is the writer, Owen Hathley. Based in London, Owen writes about architecture and politics and is the author of several books, including Landscapes of Communism from 2015, The Ministry of Nostalgia in 2016, The Adventures of Owen Hathley in the Post-Soviet Space in 2018, and Trans-Europe Express the same year, described by Hugh Lemmy in the pages of the AR as a thoughtful, sharp, and personal look at how Europe uses architecture to tell stories about itself and an excavation of the political realities behind its own fairy tales. Owen is culture editor at Socialist Magazine Tribune and contributes regularly to The Guardian, Dazine, and many others, including the AR, where he has written about everything from the gentrification of London's disused buildings to North Korean urbanism to Zaha Hadid's reputations. I'm speaking to you in lockdown, (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. in london so what's the state of your bookshelves how are they ordered what do they look like
1: so there's 11 bookshelves i think of which there's some like big ikea billy ones which are red which um someone once told me was very kind of 80s Piers Gough, which was not the intention but moving into this flat i was made to give a commitment that i would never buy another bookcase so one way of dealt with this is by a lot going out when things come in but another has been extensive use of the floor
0: right (laughs) bending the rules I assume you have your own books as well
1: yeah they're at the top of the architecture bookshelf next to the for one reason or another next to the science books
0: do you ever read your books
1: yeah absolutely um there's You get people, don't you, who kind of do the kind of, oh, I never read my reviews and I never read my own books. And maybe that's supposed to sound sound modest or something. I do it all the time. But usually to make sure I'm not repeating myself too much, I don't do it for fun.
0: How do you decide what you write about?
1: A lot of them sort of grow out of each other, as it were. The first book was kind of a cobbling together of various blog posts I'd written in my mid-20s. And so that was straightforward, that was. And it was obvious it's going to be about modernism and about a kind of like, this is my version of it, which I've then spent quite a lot of time trying to backtrack from. And then New Ruins came out of really New Labour, which I, apologies for you know the fans of, of the old <laughs> war criminal, I absolutely hated. Um, apart from the actual election itself in 1997, which was ecstatic. And the next two books came directly out of that one. So uncommon which is about pulp as in the band came out of the chapter on sheffield where i kind of fell in love with sheffield a bit writing new ruins it's really it's the hero of that book and manchester the villain um new kind of bleak was just a sequel to new ruins completely repeated the formula and then the next one landscapes of communism came out of a very very long-running obsession with communism both the capital c and the small c then those kind of books that came out of Working on something else, almost doing them as a holiday. Mm-hmm. So, Ministry of Nostalgia was a holiday from writing Landscapes of Communism, because that took three years. And, Ministry of Nostalgia took about three weeks. Chaplain Machine is half of my PhD, which mm-hmm. I started before the first book. Then, Trans Europe Express came out of an AJ series, which was the AJ trying to sort of do a version of The kind of New Ruins and New Kind of Bleak, which both grew out of a BD series. The most recent one, Adventures in the Post-Soviet Space, is a sort of sequel to Landscapes of Communism. So that's a book just on the USSR, just on the former USSR. So the most recent one, which comes out in November,
0: is that the Red Metropolis.
1: Is that the yeah? Well, the most recent because it's not out yet. The forthcoming one came out of an essay for the New Left Review when the twenty nineteen election happened and it went the way it did. The essay I wrote became a book, basically.
0: And while we're talking about writing, it might be a good moment to ask you the book you wish you'd written.
1: I suppose neither of them do I actually think I would have written them in the same way. But they're more kind of books that when I read them, I was just like, oh, I'm so glad that someone has done that. One of them is Respectable by Lindsay Hanley, which is a book about class in Britain and class mobility in Britain. Very much kind of in in the way that she does, like with her first book on housing estates that flicks between historical and personal. A lot of the way people, particularly people on the left, talk about class is very much of a cudgel and a sort of blunt instrument. And growing up in a quite odd working class family, I never really would see myself or the places where I grew up in their descriptions so I don't want to badmouth him because I think he's a brilliant writer and I'm very glad he does what he does, but Owen Jones's Chavs is a very good example of that. I found that he didn't really capture the, kind of, the ways in which people within the working class hate each other and throw slurs and insults at each other. It seemed very much, and I think he'd be honest about this, it was a middle-class person's idea of working-class experiences. Lindsay's book is not like that. This is how it actually felt this is what I actually remember. And it was done with enormous clarity and and power. And I was very glad that that was done. The other one is a book called The Anatomy of Sprawl by a writer on town planning called Nicholas Phelps. Again, very much this is it um, variety. So what that book is about is the fact that the largest urban area in the south outside of London is the conurbation centred on Southampton and Portsmouth, which has 1.5 million people. And nobody knows that this is the case. Nobody knows how it happened. Nobody knows what it looks like. Nobody talks about it. And one of the oddest things of all is that their kind of town planning politics has, since the mid-60s, been absolutely obsessively about rejecting the idea of the two cities growing together into a sort of south coast super city. There was a plan in the mid 60s by Colin Buchanan, who did the famous Traffic in Towns, but to do this kind of Milton Keynes style grid, this kind of linear grid that would connect the two, and there'd be this grid of like roads and public transport and industry and green space and new suburbs that would kind of flow between the two. And Milton Keynes nicked a lot of its ideas off it. And it was supported by Southampton and Portsmouth and bitterly resisted by the small towns in between and by Hampshire County Council. And so it never happened. But all the population growth that was expected did. So it was predicted that a million and a half people would live there by the 21st century and a million and a half people lived there in the 21st century. So it all happened. You know, the infrastructure is terrible. The architecture is terrible. The town planning is non-existent. It's incredibly congested and mainly, I think, absolutely characterless outside of those two cities. And while this has happened, those two cities are actually, and nobody really knows this again, the second and third densest cities in England outside of London. So I didn't say, but it's probably obvious at this point that I grew up in Southampton. I always had the question of where the football rivalry came from, which is incredibly bitter. Like when they play each other, you know, in either of those cities, every pub has to close. My grandma, who's from Portsmouth, claimed that it was incredibly recent and that she supported both, and that when she was growing up in the 40s, everyone supported both. And one of the things in this, in this book by Nicholas Phelps is that Hampshire County Council had a policy of divide and rule, and of playing the two off against each other, to make sure that they would basically never be able to properly unite. <laughs> um, so every single one of my questions was answered. And it was worse than I thought.
0: My grandmother lives there. And for decades, my kind of knowledge or my experience of Southampton would be going to her house, which was a semi-detached kind of Victorian (laughs) house, a very quiet street. And in my mind, uh, we were in the suburbs of Southampton. And when I did a look at a map to see actually where her road was, it's basically by Southampton Central Station. It's right, <laughs> right in the middle of Southampton.
1: Yeah, yeah. The centre of one of the denser
0: cities in the country. Both of these books feel personally relevant and poignant and you talk about this obsession with Southampton. And I just wondered, how much of yourself do you keep in your writing? Is there any benefit to to distance or should you always keep it close to yourself?
1: So I think I always put quite a lot in, but um, my, my sister is... a archivist at the archive of joe spence and she wrote her thesis much more kind of like explicitly on this stuff on representations of working-class women and put loads of personal stuff in that when my mum read it um she was like oh she writes about herself you never write about yourself she writes about herself and her feelings why don't you do this and i was like (laughs) i thought i did so i must be keeping more out of it than i thought i was
0: the conversation so far has tracked your, um, like we started in Southampton, you didn't study architecture and instead you have a background in kind of history and politics. So yeah. what first inspired you or convinced you to write about architecture?
1: I had a casual interest in it for a long time. Because I think one of the things about the, 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 just hang on about Southampton some more, one of the things about its environment that's very interesting is the combination of medieval walls, tower blocks. And you can react one of two ways to that, I think, either by going, that's a terrible way to build a city, or by going, oh, that's an interesting way to build a city. How did that end up happening? There's a whole culture where to like tower blocks is OK <laughs> and to think that they're quite interesting and to think that housing states are interesting and, you know, kind of post-war blocks and green space are interesting and, you know, brutalist concrete theatres are interesting. And also in Lewisham Library... In the reference room, they had a big copy of Tower Block by Miles Glenn Denning and Stephen Muthesius, which is, you know, at least at that point, that and Elaine Harwood's post war listed buildings were the Bibles. Like Those were the mm. two books.
0: What do you think this position as an outsider to architecture, what do you think that offers you?
1: There's that thing that Jonathan Meads, who was obviously also not one, often talks about, about how architects are one of the professions that still talk about the layman. And I think that's happened a bit less, but I bet you, you'll still find senior people in the REBO who I'm quite sure do this. Which is weird because, you know, we will use it at all times and are in it at all times. So it's completely bizarre that this be treated as this kind of, you know, absolutely specialist discipline in a way that uh, it I, I shouldn't be the exception, it should be the rule. There are critics who are architects whose work I enjoy, but a lot of the ones you know, that stand out for me have always been people like Raina Bannam, who are, who are not architects. It currently seems fashionable to bash Rainer Bannam, which I won't have at all. I'm, I'm 100% percent pro Bannum. Um <laughs> Bannam, I suppose, also coming at it as a historian of architecture was always interesting for me. And I often feel that there's a thing architects do uh, of sort of pretending that style isn't real, And I can never work out if they're just lying. And I think a lot of interesting architectures come out of that. But I I find it completely alien to my own way of thinking. Yeah, it's one of the things that I find most baffling when I read architects
0: on architecture. So as someone who didn't go to architecture school, what books would you give to an architecture student? So I've come up with
1: a group of them. One of them is, I suppose... They all kind of touch on architecture, but the only one that's kind of strictly an architecture book is the first one, which is Architecture in the Age of Stalin, which is by a Russian scholar now based in Los Angeles called Vladimir Papennyi. He never did anything ever again, basically, of any use. Met him once and he was a little bit seedy, but it's a masterpiece, and it's exactly like how I would like to see 20th century architecture written about more. And then he takes this through the entirety of 20th century Soviet architecture to kind of explain this absolutely bizarre architecture that emerges, particularly after World War II. Things like the kind of Seven Sisters skyscrapers in Moscow or the, the circle line on the Moscow metro. Things that are just incredibly weird. And, and rather than kind of just seeing it solely as a state imposition or seeing it solely as, you know, some result of totalitarianism or whatever, he runs it through this sort of combination of anthropology and aesthetics. And it's, it's wild. <laughs> it's full of just mad stuff, like the, the gates to nowhere on the Moscow metro. And as a kind of example of what architecture can do, both in a positive and negative sense, I think every architecture student should read it. The other one I've got is Clichés of Urban Doom and other essays by Ruth Glass. So Ruth Glass is probably best known now for coining the term gentrification, which she coined in a couple of essays about London in the mid-60s, very much to describe places like Islington and um, Notting Hill that were only just then starting to gentrify. But One of the things I like about it is this sort of combination that she has as a writer of going from the extremely kind of low level so working out you know what shops have opened on your high street and connecting them to you know major international forces of the flows of capital and so forth and of industrialization into industrialization a lot of her insights you can find sort of similar versions of in and someone like Jane Jacobs but she doesn't have i think Jacobs is kind of moralistic an ahistorical idea about how everything is wonderful and the planners come in and ruin it. There's none of that in her work, and she's very much conscious of what an unplanned city is like and how it's not particularly great, very conscious of the interests of capital, which tend to be ignored in the work of Jacobs and her acolytes. One of the great pieces in it, is which the title comes from, is is called Clichés of Urban Doom, which just goes for this long record of like, ah, the apocalyptic doomed city type nonsense. Architects and architectural discourse has this tendency to see planning and architecture in this really Manichean way. There's a long history of things that are really unhelpful in this. It's the thing that's shared by the plan for and Le Likiporsi wanting to demolish the whole of central Paris. And you then find it again in Charles Jenks in the stuff on Pruitt, ego or... The stuff on Robin Hood Gardens, where he kind of dresses up as a a mugger in the stairwell at Robin Hood Gardens, not his finest moment. You know, that kind of idea that architecture is this deterministic thing, and that it only goes one way, and that it never develops and never changes. If it was once a failure, it was always a failure. It's something that I think is very much part of how people look at modern architecture, and it also was previously, ironically, a way that people looked at Victorian architecture as being in some way kind of, you know, something inculcating poverty in people or something. And it's, it's nonsense and it has nothing to do with the actual causes of poverty or the actual experience of urban poverty and the way that they link with buildings.
0: Why do you think it's important for architects to know and learn about politics? They're so inextricably linked. And why is it important that architects know their stuff?
1: yeah they 're in it whether they like it or not, I think is the main thing, and so it 's useful for them, I think, to have some consciousness of what they can and can't affect a lot of the 20th century saw architects i think extremely overrate the effect that they had on people 's lives, which then meant that they became you know very convenient whipping boys when certain policies failed if you 're in an environment it 's worthwhile that you actually understand it and I think otherwise you know, it will bend you to its own will. I suppose I can understand why you wouldn't want to know too much. A lot of what architects are involved in, and this has always been, been thus, is pretty morally dubious. I spend more time wanting to explain architecture to people that aren't in it. To people involved in politics, for instance, I spend much more of my time trying to explain people in politics why they should be interested in architecture than trying to explain people in architecture why they should be interested in politics. I just think that anyone knowing about politics is important because we live in a democracy and supposedly if you live in a democracy, everyone is supposed to help make the decisions.
0: What do you say to architects who claim they're apolitical?
1: I don't think it's possible to be apolitical, like politics is happening whether you like it or not, it's like being a oxygen like you might not think about the fact you're breathing oxygen, but you are And um, you might not think about the way in which you're political everything you do is a political act but that doesn't mean that you have to be party political in any way necessarily on the one hand, it'd be easy to get on a horse and go, you should not work in any circumstances where this and this happens but, you know, I'm very much in one of the few professions where you don't have a huge amount of risk of that. There's places in writing where you're going to get asked to do dodgy things, but I generally don't get asked to do them. The Daily Mail aren't exactly going to be knocking at my door. Um, (laughs) There's been a couple of times when I've refused certain things, but they've only been recent. And they've sort of been in the situation where I know that I will still be able to pay the rent if I say no. And they've usually been brutalism related. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah so many kind of like all-time best brutalism in the world ever type things and I, I don't really want anything to do with them. There's yeah. just so much brutalism crap. I said this to a good friend of mine once and they were just like you're not that important so it was like fair yeah. enough but I felt a little bit guilty about some of the brutalism nostalgia and brutalism mania of the last five years. I felt a little bit culpable for some of it but a lot of architecture is looking at things and going wow isn't that cool. In this particular case, because so much of it was built in this country at any rate as social housing and as public buildings, you're participating in a context when that stuff is extremely political. And to then kind of reduce that to like, wow, look at this cool thing. Let's buy a flat there when it gets taken over by urban splash. Um, you are participating in a social wrong.
0: <laughs> I mean, outside brutalism, a recurring theme in your work is social injustice observing dire inequalities that surround us and how they're embedded in our built bases Mm. so I'd like to ask you what is the book everyone should read about injustice
1: I thought I'd just come up with one which is City of Courts by Mike Davis you know lots of architects will have read uh, Rayna Banham's Los Angeles book which is a wonderful book about the ways in which Los Angeles works but the amount that that book has to leave out of the way in which that pleasant car and surfer culture, in in order for that to exist, this enormous regime of police brutality and white supremacy had to be erected. It's sort of detective solving. So he almost sort of treats it a lot of the time like a sort of Marxist private detective trying to work out why Los Angeles is so monumentally fucked up. And, you know, it does it very well. And, tells you where the bodies are buried and tells you who to blame. A lot of the time, there's a kind of cock-up theory of why places like that are as they are. And, ah, we couldn't help it, you know, all these things happened. And, and then it ends up like that. And, yeah, the, one of the great things about that book is that it also makes it very clear that it didn't have to be like that. There's all these moments where alternative futures sort of open up in, in Los Angeles in that book, and they're always closed down.
0: You wrote in the AR's social housing issue last summer about the state of real estate. And you said, it's maddening to realise that we already know how to solve homelessness and housing poverty, but threw it away for the promise of a quick profit. How complicit are architects in this heist? When do you think the housing crisis will end and what needs to happen? And what role do architects play?
1: So that came from Raquel Rolnick's recent book, Urban Warfare. It's so her that claims that, and I'm happy to agree with it. I think there's there's lots of things like this that, you know, we know, for instance, how to reduce carbon emissions in the city. You make sure that very, very, very few people drive cars. And you make sure that there's a mix of cycling and undergrounds and buses and trams, and that's how you do it. And we all know that's how you do it. And everyone's sort of desperate to try and find something else other than that, because that doesn't accord particularly well with a particular sort of... <laughs> free market thinking and it's much the same in housing we, we all know because it was done in the middle of the 20th century how you solve homelessness and housing inequality it involves the state having a massively expanded role it involves cooperatives having a massively expanded role and it involves tenants and people who live in housing having significantly larger rights than they do now and we, we know it because we did it architects within that it's a difficult one because, of course, architects were part of that. Mm. And a lot of what's been happening in the last 10 years, the more interesting side of the kind of brutalism nostalgia. So something like Tom Cordell's Utopia London, or the film Roly Way Speaks for Itself, mm. or the AF book Project Interrupted, they're all very much about the role that architects played within that. Architects played a really important and I think mostly positive role in that. And I think a lot of what's happening now is architects looking at that and wishing they could do that again. And it's very, very, very difficult. And I wouldn't want to kind of wag my finger at architects within that. I think they should be honest about what they're doing. But would I be able to say you shouldn't work for, you know, developers to an architect? It's like, Well, fine, you know, welcome to Universal Credit. I think on the one hand, being conscious of what's actually happening is good. I think supporting movements that aim to change it is good and trying to engage with local authorities and other public bodies and activist groups that actually have the ability or the inclination to change that is important. And I have kind of mixed feelings about the endeavours that are going on now to do that, which definitely exist. So I got a bit of stick from some architects of publishing a piece by Tom Cordell on public practice. So it's very much about how the idea of public practice is that it's part of a larger aim. The mayor wants loads of stuff built and he wants it to be built well, so he wants actual skilled architects to be involved in that process. And obviously a lot of that is then going to be private. So then you have developers sponsoring it because obviously they want that private housing to be built and they want to be making the profits out of it. So it's not strictly a public project in the way that it often presents itself as. And I think that's sort of fair enough. And I think Tom's basic argument is that London should have a sort of intensive rather than extensive growth you know L- London should be building housing of a particular type rather than just building housing, and that it you know it should rather than imagining itself growing to 10 or 11 million it should concentrate on housing and good affordable publicly owned housing the people that, that live there now mm. which I think is all fair enough but I think one of the things that he sort of misses a little bit I think he tries to claim that this expertise exists in councils and that they're setting themselves up as rivals to that council expertise. I don't think that's true. I think that expertise has been destroyed in the last 50 years. There had to be this project trying to link young architects with public bodies, because it wasn't actually happening any other way. Mm. Um, and within that, they ended up having to make, I think, some quite difficult compromises, which, some of which I think are fair enough, and some of which I think they shouldn't have made. I'm glad that they are out there recognising there's a problem, and trying to intervene in that problem, rather than someone like Patrick Schumacher, whose entire philosophy seems to be, this problem is brilliant, I love this problem, let's have more of this problem.
0: We've managed to keep this conversation relatively coronavirus-free. I just thought it was particularly prescient right now. More than 90% of rough sleepers known to councils have now been offered accommodation during yeah. this pandemic, yeah. what do you think will follow this? Where do you think this now puts us?
1: One well, of the immediate things is going to happen, and I gather from a recent article in the Manchester Evening News, this is already starting to happen, is they're going to be thrown back onto the streets. And they're going to hope that we forget about all of this. I'm loath to talk about the positive aspects of something that's killed 60,000 people already just in this country. But one of the things that it has shown is that, again, these things don't just happen. It's a great argument against just happenism. It became clear that if people were left on the streets, you know, this thing was going to spread like wildfire. And so people had to be moved off the streets and they knew how to do it and they did it. And it was really simple. Mm-hmm. And a lot of places have already have been doing this for some time. Um, you know, the obvious example people point to a lot of the time is Finland, which just has a policy of if, if people become homeless, put them in houses. Um, it's really not rocket science. And... I'm not given to optimism after last December, but I think it will be difficult to put that genie back in the bottle. Once you've demonstrated that you can just do it, these things are actually really quite simple.
0: I mean, we're talking about changing minds. We asked you, what is the book that changed your mind? And you responded, it's not a big mind-changing, but I went from thinking Britain is terrible because it's uniquely backward in (laughs) Europe to thinking that Britain is terrible because it's uniquely capitalist because of Ellen Mike Sinswood's The Pristine Culture of Capitalism. What is it that makes Britain so thoroughly capitalist?
1: It's a very difficult question. I think you can see it in, in all sorts of walks of life. There's a great passage in the book where she says that we look at you know, the poor quality of British public spaces, the poor quality of British housing, you know the kind of endless question of why Birmingham is as it is, and decide that that's because of backwardness. And she says that the things that we admire in a European city, the public spaces, the grand public buildings, the better social housing, are uh, the result of the fact that pre-capitalist culture survives better there. So, you have on the one hand a kind of what she argues is a pre capitalist kind of urban mer- merchant culture, a kind of guild culture. And that's why you have the guild halls and the guild squares and they survive in a way that ours don't. And I would add to that also the fact that they tend to have stronger trade unions and stronger kind of, want of a better word, civil society organizations than we do in Britain and also probably other than they do in the United States. And so because of that, there's these checks on, on money and that we just don't have them. And you can see that, and you know, it's a great way of seeing that in architecture, of like the particular awfulness, like the extremely poor kind of haptic quality of, of British buildings, something like New Street Station, how cheaply that's been done or the kind of additions to Waverley Station in Edinburgh. Like These things are so cheap and so tacky no other country is so obsessed with making the pettiest saving of money and making sure that, you know, that, that, that our wealth creators get a nice big chunk of the profits.
0: I'd like to move on to some quick fire questions now. What's the book whose cover you would have on your wall?
1: So I actually have a frame shaped like a book, which has a constantly rotating book inserted into it. And the current book inserted into it is Psychopathology of Everyday Life by Sigmund Freud in uh, 1930s Penguin edition. And that was mainly because I you know, did that at the start of knowing I wasn't going to be able to leave the house for three months. It seemed <laughs> appropriate.
0: And what about the covers of your own books? How was that decision made?
1: So the most recent one is a joke um, at my own expense. It came from um, the cover of... Pergé's Adventures of Tintin in the Land of the Soviets which is the first Tintin book and like all Tintin books is incredibly racist and right-wing but it just has this picture on the front of this little lad in a boiler suit in front of the Kremlin and I thought this is hilarious and it was a sort of joke I guess it's at my expense as late Traveller goes through the Soviet republics and reflects (laughs) on what he sees there and the sinister lands.
0: Could you tell us the book you ought to have read but haven't?
1: All of the big Russian ones, given I've got such an interest in Russian and Soviet and Ukrainian and Belarusian and Caucasian and Central Asian culture. I've read Crime and Punishment and Notes from the Underground, but I have never read Rufus Karamazov. I've never read anything by Tolstoy. I've not read Anna Karenina. I've not read War and Peace. I've not read Resurrection. I've not read anything. I've never read What is to be Done by Chernyshevsky. Shameful, really.
0: Talking of guilt, what's the book that no one can ever know you've read?
1: Um, Well, they will know now, won't they? I suppose I've not really made any secret of this, but my big sort of guilty influence on my development as a writer and human being is the work of Julie Birchall. (laughs) So Birchall is a monster and a bigot and a transphobe and a racist, and she hasn't written a good sentence in about 25 years. But I had, like, an awful kind of writer crush on her when I was a teenager, and it took a long time to get over it. And the kind of worst example of this, I think partly it was a class thing, you know, that, that she made such a thing of, like, as she puts it, flexing her roots And being from where I was from, I was very into that in a way that probably made me insufferable when I was a student. That book is her attempt to write a sort of communist Jackie Collins book about becoming a coked-up journalist in London in the 80s. Young woman from, it's obviously her, you know, young woman from Council Estate in Bristol becomes journalist in 1980s, kind of Pet Shop Boys London. But... Yeah, that and like there's a couple of essay collections of hers from around the same time, which includes one called Waiting for the Russian Ballet, which is about how much better Britain will be when the Soviets finally invade us.
0: When we asked you what the one book you were take to quarantine with you is, you replied that you are in quarantine and you have your library, so it doesn't apply. Instead... You gave, I think, six books for your answer to the books you reread again and again. So instead, I'm going to ask you to just pick (laughs) one of those to take into quarantine with you. Oh, man.
1: So they were all um, essay collections. There's one by Angela Carter, one by James Baldwin, one by George Orwell. I think the one I would choose is, because it's in four volumes, would (laughs) probably have to be the Orwell one. Although, God, I can imagine three months of Orwell, I'd be absolutely willing to kill him. But the other ones are too short. I suppose probably the Angela Carter one. Yeah, Angela Carter's collected essays. It's about 600 pages. It's a lot going on. I'll take that.
0: (laughs) And you described them like old friends in your email. And... Actually, it's surprising how many people do describe their books as old friends. And then are horrified at my next question, which is, (laughs) if you could only save five from the bonfire, (laughs) what would they be?
1: I mean, obviously, I don't want all my books to go on fire. But if they did, I'd limit it to those that have sentimental value. So one of them belongs to my granddad. And um, it's a signed copy of the Scottish nationalist and communist Hugh McDermott's volume stony limits which has his poem on the beauty of lenin mausoleum among other things but mainly just because it's you know there's a particular thing of it belonging to my granddad of it being signed it's a thing i would like to keep the other is one of this would be really difficult because it's huge but it's a lovely thing and i wouldn't want to, have to try and find another copy of it is a volume that was produced in 1954 on the rebuilding of warsaw but specifically mainly on the rebuilding of the Marshal residential district, so which was rebuilt in kind of big, grandiose neoclassical way in the 50s. Again, it's just a, got a certain sentimental value, you know, I spent a lot of time in Warsaw, I have a lot of attachment to it as a place, but also as a sort of object, it's wonderful. It's got these extraordinary graphics and drawings and cartoons and so on, and It's like a kind of big chunk of a ridiculously over-the-top classical building in itself. You can sort of imagine it being like one of the bricks in one of those gigantic things. (laughs) Much smaller but near to it in the bookcase is a 1970s photo book on the Moscow Metro just called Moscow Metro. And I think I'd have trouble tracking that down again. And I love the Moscow Metro. And um, it's got lovely photos of it. And, And it has excellent 70s fashions and graphics. And the other two, partly because of the fact that they're used to be owned by the aforementioned Angela Carter, whose books obviously got dumped at some point in um, one of the bookshops on Charing Cross Road. One of them I will just take because, which is the three volumes of Bertolt Brecht's collected poems. Brecht is a sort of aphorist, you know, not necessarily as a playwright, but as a poet and a kind of writer of aphorisms and sort of almost kind of guides to life and guides to thinking. Almost in the way that people would take around like Confucius or the Bible or the Little Red Book, I would I, if I were to do that of anything, it would be the, the those three volumes of the collected poems, which are all quite slim, so you can kind of fit one in the pocket at a time, and the other is a copy of City of Quartz, which I have, which um, came from the same sale.
0: And you've bent the rules periodically across this whole process, suggesting, well six books instead of one in one case so as punishment i'm actually going to ask you if you could only save one from the bonfire which one of those would it be prep poems easy easy thank you for listening please head to architectural-review.com for owen hatherley's full ar bookshelf bibliography as well as all of his brilliant writing for the ar The AR depends on its subscribers to bring you fearless storytelling, independent critical voices and thought-provoking projects from around the world. Consider supporting the AR with a subscription today. Visit architectural-review.com forward slash subscriptions to find out more. Students receive 30% off.